hello everybody and welcome to our latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, it's Brett Mitchell here again and today we are going to start hopefully what will be a series of discussions with uh, presenters from the IPS conference. I'd love to say I'm live from IPS Liverpool but I'm not but what I do have is uh, a special guest who is live from Liverpool uh, for the IPS conference, uh, Dr Yvonne Curran. Welcome Yvonne. Thank you very much. It's delightful to be here. Uh, it's wonderful to, to have you. And um, so the IPS conference kicks off in about an hour and a half's time. And we've managed to, to nab Yvonne, who's presenting uh, later today. Oh, actually, no, it's tomorrow, I believe. Tomorrow, my fault. Tomorrow. Um, and uh, and we're going to hear a little bit of the background to, to her talk. Now, this, this podcast will be posted after she's done her IPS talk. But um, it's great that Yvonne's uh, going to talk to us today. Uh, so Dr. Yvonne Curran's career began in infection control in, in uh, 1987, and she was the lead for the outbreak program work at Health Protection Scotland. She's now an independent nurse consultant for infection prevention and control, and she's an honorary senior research fellow at Glasgow Caledonian University. And Yvonne's talk at the IPS conference, and what we're going to chat about today, is called Guideline Development, What Let Us Down? So, Yvonne, what has let us down with guideline development? <laughs> um, this is one where, uh, just my computer's uh, butting in there. This is one where um, I, I could be pelted with oranges, but I'm, I'm going to risk it. Um, I won't pelt you with any oranges. I can't throw that far <laughs> anyway, so you're okay. <laughs> infection prevention and control recommendations in evidence-based guidelines tend to be good practice points which is little different from good old boys sat around the table um, that, that, that went before. Um, and that leads to the accusations that the evidence base is poor and because the evidence base is poor, really doesn't need to be followed that much. Um, and it also, evidence-based guidelines are kind of on a pedestal. You have to do RCTs, it has to be up there. That's the only game in town and these things are without fault. And so, so you, you're in a situation. So that, so that was the sort of inspiration for, for the start. And I, I went looking for loopholes. So methodologically, there's two catch-22s. And the first one is, if, if you read any of these guidelines, they're forever telling you they use robust procedures. <laughs> robust, you know, you should do a word count on robust. It's big. Um, and if you find a fault and you say that there's, there's a mistake here, they say, yeah, we follow robust procedures. So, so that's catch-22 number one. And catch-22 number uh, Catch-22 number two is that the evidence from IPC studies is generally considered insufficiently robust, and we're told to do more robust studies, when it's clearly unethical to do robust studies. Yeah. And sometimes there's deference to, to, uh, deference to expertise. So I went looking for um, loopholes and, and, and errors, and, and I found them. I found them in the outputs Sometimes they're impenetrable and imprecise, and sometimes the recommendations are overstated. And sometimes some of the basics, the really basics of IPC, is left behind. And it's not like you can go, okay, so this is the evidence-based guideline. I'll just now go to another guideline, which has got all the answers that the first guideline didn't have. <laughs> so that's why I think there are problems and why they let us down. Yeah. Uh, look, I could talk about this all day with you. This is very close um, to my heart, uh, Yvonne. Well, do you want to give us an example of, of perhaps uh, something sure. that's, that's let us down? Yeah. 
So the, there was a very nice um, respiratory guideline review produced in 2013, and it quoted the oft-quoted CDC guideline for the split between droplets and aerosols published in 2007. Now, if you go take a look at that, it cites the evidence to Jugid in 1946, and Jugid cites the evidence to Hatch in 1942. And if you go and get Hatch, he didn't mention a, a size cutoff point at all. So we all ended the pandemic with guidance which had misrepresented studies done during the war. Mm. Uh, um, and, and hence the, the blow up of, of what happened from that. Yeah. I, I can also give you the example of the TB guideline, which gives different recommendations with regard to PPE. This is a nice guideline. We got to PPE and isolation precautions based on the drug sensitivity um, of, of TB, when in actual fact, they're both spread the same way, the transmissibility is exactly the same. And that can never make sense. No, that's right. Um, and I've heard you talk about um, parachute evidence before. Uh, and what do, you, what do you sort of mean by this concept of parachute evidence? So, so parachute evidence is the work of um, Smith and Pell. And they said, you know, we, we went looking. Uh, and when they did the process, we went looking for evidence that um, from randomised controlled trials and systematic reviews that jumping out of a plane with or without a parachute on, you know, what was the difference with regard to gravitational challenge and death or serious injury and death due to the, the gravitational challenge? And there was none. Surprise, surprise. There's, <laughs> there has this big one study, which was a BMJ Christmas edition, so we could put that one to bed. because Oh, we're going to talk about that one. <laughs> the plane never left the ground, so we, we can park that. <laughs> but in actual fact, there is evidence for parachutes because of Newton. You know, gravity mm. is, is explained. It's not explained by RCTs, but it is explained by physics and maths. Yeah. And I think for some sciences or, or some uh, um, facts, some phenomena we need to explain them with randomized controlled trials but for others we need to look for different paradigms of where evidence and you know COVID's been a, a casing point it's really highlighted um our, our, our gaps in in uh, our fundamental um thoughts uh, about yeah. some of these and, and and in the past so you know that's in my space of the world i guess has, has changed a lot over the last 12 months but, you know, it's, as you say, it's a sort of catch-22 because, um, you know, there also hasn't been a lot of interest and a lot of research in infection control for a long time too. And there hasn't been those, those studies. I'm not saying we need RCTs or everything, but it's that sort of catch-22. We're in this paradigm going round and round circles and, and, and not seeing the wood for the trees. Um, in fact, well, you know, your talk's going to dovetail nicely into my talk at IPS conference uh, on, on Wednesday because I talk about it a bit more too. So it's going to be, it'll be fascinating. Um, so perhaps um, the next step for us is to think about where did the process go wrong? What are your thoughts on, on that? I think when we, when we do a, um, a systematic review and looking for randomised controlled trials, we always start with the questions. And actually, I, I think we need to get further upstream. There's always the um, size of the problem and infection prevention and control wins hands down. HAI is a big problem. There was another big study recently, how much it costs. So we win hands down and there's a case to be answered, if you will. But the second part is, why does that happen? What is happening to cause it? And when you, when you take a look, 
the actual theoretical framework as the basis for these guidelines, as published, appears to be quite weak. And I think if we had a really good theoretical framework, now there's a recent guideline just came out for consultation, an MRSA guideline, and it said MRSA is spread by multiple routes, something of those words. That's not enough. What routes is it spread by? How is it spread? How does it go from A to B? We need to be really explicit if we're ever going to get to the right questions, if we're ever going to get to the right answers. Yeah, because those questions and those right answers then have major implications, not just for guideline development and, and what we do as uh, clinicians in terms of what we recommend or as a clinician, what you're going to practice, but also much more broadly for health services. You know, if we think about yes. design of buildings or, um, you know, if we if we've that's the that's the, if we talk about really true hierarchy of controls, we can actually engineer out some of these risks if we get some of this Absolutely. critical stuff right in the first place. Absolutely. Mm. There's a poster um, that will be at conference that talks about how you make do, how you make an isolation room, in inverted commas, in a four-bedded area. Rather than say, this is how we kicked the CEO's door down to demand um, that we have enough cubicles. And whenever there have been quality indicators, they tend to be things that we can blame frontline workers for, you know, uh, cases of this or number of times they do hand hygiene. Why don't we have indicators that say something like, how many times do we have failures to isolate because of inadequate isolation facilities? Because that's the manager's quality indicator. And that's leading to, and just like you say, if we have the facilities, if we have the practice, we wouldn't have to do half as much in practice if we had the right facilities. That's right. And I'm sure there's many people who listening to this who would love that example because on a day-to-day basis, they're faced with these um to, to help contribute to decisions about, well, who gets X room or Y room in the context of not just infections, but um, yeah. uh, mental health-related uh, conditions, uh, you know, dementia yeah. and cognition-related challenges, palliation. And, mm. and you know, these are, these are difficult things. And so ultimately people are forced to make decisions, not forced, but the infrastructure is not there to make the, the decisions that actually need to be made in the... In the first totally and I think that's that's important when we're going to do guidance we do it in the context of what we need to practice in that's mm. vital mm. so you talked about theoretical framework and um, is that what we need to do do we need to look at um, what, what needs to happen in that space I, I, absolutely and I think um, I've kind of put a starter for 10 of a theoretical framework in the presentation um, and because there is evidence, there is microbiological evidence to support the case, and, but we just need to make it absolutely explicit. So we need to know where the pathogens come from, that, you know, we stay explicit, where the pathogens come from that cause cross-transmission and HCAI, and then how does transmission occur, and how does entry occur, they're different, and then what are the prevention strategies, and how do we achieve that? And one of the big things is... Um, that we in infection control are always working where there is a plurality of risks and a plurality of actions needed. And we have to accept that. We can't just do one thing. We have to do, that's the field that we're in. And I think because there is this plurality of actions and uh, plurality of control measures, we, um, it's much harder for the likes of Epic to come up with and say, yeah, the environment is heavily involved or this is heavily involved. You can't, you can just come up with a, they're all in the picture, but we can't identify in any given case, the particular uh, um, size of any individual problem. 
Yeah, and look, I've, I think I might have mentioned this um, on, on on a podcast I've done before, but and a great example that at the other end of the spectrum, when you're thinking about researchers who are trying to do research in this space, they get slammed by reviewers for not being able to control um, some yeah. of these things, and then you don't get the grants to do these things. Now, these things are extremely hard to control, and you know, we can talk about methods another day. But yeah, um, but you know, to do it well is very hard, and you can't. And quite often, I ask, the, I sort of say, what does it matter if there's four things that we need to do to improve patient safety for this particular aspect? Uh, do we have to necessarily unpick what the individual value of every single one of those is, if in their totality they work? But we know that one of them perhaps doesn't work as well um, in isolation. So um, we do get caught up, but that's but that's um, that's that's a challenge because as, as researchers, that's the paradigm that they live in, and me at that time at times too. Um, and it's balanced by what's pragmatic and real life, and what's ethically able to be done in the context of clinical research. It's not ethical, you know. We're not going to have a I, I sort of I give this um, really blunt example to, to students at times, and I say, you know, would you go into an RCT where the person that you're using bloodied, soiled um, scalpels and uh, surgical equipment from the previous person, of course you're not going to do that. We don't need an RCT to prove it, that you shouldn't do that, nor would you ever ethically do that. And so that doesn't mean that the evidence is poor, um, that we need to sterilise equipment. So, um, you know, the, the, I guess they're just um, some other examples that to probably support what you're saying, Yvonne, on that, on that approach. So what do you think? Does this mean we don't need research or what do we, what do we need? Absolutely, um, we need researchers. It just means that maybe we do a different type of research or our starting point is different. If we really got the theoretical framework uh, um, nailed that everyone was in agreement with, and I think that would take you know, maybe multiple universities, maybe <laughs> lots of different people working together. If we had that, no, then our research questions become clearer and more workable. And some will be able to do with RCTs, but not all of them. And so what do you see as the this going from here? What do you see as... Um... I was kind of stuck with a problem without a solution. Mm. Uh, um, and then Prof Greenhow came up with the solution. And it was one of these papers that, you know, lights and bells and whistles yeah. all went off this is the answer and so the paper was entitled is covid going to be evidence-based guidelines nemesis mm. it will because when you stand back how can we how can we prepare for an organism that we've never had before that we've never experienced before that's never been as as communicable before um, and she has come up with this co complex systems paradigm um, and there's a lovely table in her paper where she compares the evidence-based medicine paradigm um, with the complex systems paradigm. And some of the lines that she uses, emergent causality, multiple inf interacting influences account for a particular outcome, but none can have a fixed size or effect. Um, and there's another line, which is multiple per perspective viewing complex systems as moving targets. I don't think anything describes as beautifully the um, field of infection control over the last however many years than, than the statement. It's amazing that it has come up with that. And she says that good research in the complex systems paradigm um, is, is identified by strong theory, flexible methods, and pragmatic adaptation to emerging circumstances. Um, the data are never going to be complete. You know, we're never going to be able to tie it up with a bow and say it was the stethoscope with the MRSA in the cubicle. That's not going to happen. But if we have our strong theory and we continually review it by every new all the new evidence that, that comes up, it will over time need little adaptation. It will be like 
the gravity once once it's accepted yes they've added to it over time but not, not to any great extent the work was done yeah I, and i think you know one of those key elements that you, you touched on intrinsic to that is um working in the context of being multiple perspectives um yeah when i guess designing research but also when thinking about interpreting that research and what that actually yeah. means as well for yeah. policy for, for the clinicians etc well um yvonne it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about this week so we could probably chat all day about this <clears throat> are there any final thoughts that you might have um well apart from gravity works don't leave a plane uh, without a parachute i think what i'm arguing for is this blended approach we need ICTs. We're not going to. We're not suggesting they go out of the way. But there's there are times when we need other forms of research, and we need to understand it. But our theoretical framework for anything we do, we need to really nail down and make it explicit. Yeah, fantastic. Look, Yvonne, thanks so much for giving up uh, your time. I hope the talk. Goes thank well. you for asking me. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Of course, uh, haven't quite done it at the time of this recording, but um, we'll, for those listening um, uh, and who are registered for the IPS conference, you'll be able to see um, Yvonne's full talk. Um, but hopefully, we've got a, a nice taster today for for what that's all about. Um, so, thanks very much, Yvonne, on, part, on, on behalf of, uh, of our listeners, and thank you again, everybody, for listening. Um, and uh, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.